When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Binged. Okay, before we get into today's episode, I did just want to ask very quickly, if you are watching on YouTube, please like this video, give us a thumbs up, and then also subscribe. It just tells the algorithm to push this out to more people, and it's a great way to support the show. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave it a five-star review. Again, it's just a great way to support the show, and if you haven't already, it would mean so, so much to me. So thank you. Okay, now let's get into it. So some people, as they get on in years and find themselves unattached, whether by divorce or having been widowed, resign themselves to being single for the balance of their lives. They stop looking, maybe they stop meeting new people altogether, or they just close themselves off to romance. But not Oliver Northrup or Claudia Moplin. Oliver or Chip, as everyone called him, had been married a few times. Some of those marriages, like to his first wife, Peggy, lasted longer than others. With Peggy, he had several children before divorcing, remarrying, divorcing, remarrying, and divorcing again. But then along came Claudia Maupin, herself a divorcee with three daughters, who, like Chip, was entering her golden years when they met and got married in 1996. She was 60 and he was 71, and their wedding was the launching point for what blossomed into a joyous and peaceful life they shared in Davis, California, where Chip had lived for many decades. And for Claudia, who moved there in 1995, Davis was an ideal community, safe, well-maintained, and full of young people, students and academics at UC Davis. Claudia loved being around knowledge, academia, and young people, and between the two of them, Claudia and Chip had 11 children, 14 grandchildren, and eight great-grandchildren, both open and loving families on both sides, and their families merged together with ease. Chip was a World War II veteran who had served in the Navy, and after the war, he became an attorney and rose to prominence, having, by the end of the century, become one of the most distinguished defense attorneys in Northern California. Though what Chip was, at his core, was a writer and a lover of the written word. He had memorized countless classic passages of Western literature, and he was also in love with music. 
His civic engagement and extracurricular activities didn't stop with singing in a local ensemble. Chip also served on the Woodland School Board, was a member of the Rotary Club, and he frequently took on social justice issues in his legal practice. And he worked the Sunday barbecue at the county fair pretty much since time immemorial. Chip Northrup was regarded by all who knew him as a kind and gentle spirit. Becoming a lawyer at the age of 24, he practiced law for the rest of his life and never retired. He first met Claudia at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis and their romance bloomed very quickly. And everyone around them was happy for them. Their respective families loved Chip and Claudia a great deal. What both these people shared was a hunger for learning, for experience, for art, and a true zest for life. Claudia was full of love and affection, famous among her family and Chip's family as a world-class hugger, whose motherly hugs and warmth made her a kind of surrogate mother to many. And she was a lady who loved to laugh and giggle. She was a ray of sunshine who always smelled like spring, like a bouquet of roses and was a comforting presence at all sorts of get-togethers, ranging from afternoon barbecues to the births of children. But on the evening of Sunday, April 14th, 2013, Claudia and Chip's happy life together would be blacked out forever when the unthinkable happened. It first became apparent something was wrong around noon that day in 2013. Chip was supposed to sing in a lunchtime performance with the ensemble he participated in. When he failed to show for his performance, his family and friends became concerned. It was unlike him. He was meticulous and punctual and considerate. If there had been a delay, surely he would have reached out to someone to let them know. Chip's daughter, Mary, tried calling her father, but he wasn't picking up. She tried again and again, but couldn't reach him. So she sent her brother Robert and his son by the couple's duplex. He rang the doorbell, but no one answered. It looked like they'd simply just gone out of town, even though their car was still in the driveway. And although he had a key, Robert chose not to use it and instead left. Later that evening, Claudia's daughter also went to the condo and saw there were lights on inside, but was unable to get a response when she rang the bell and knocked. Claudia normally talked to her three daughters every day, but on this day, none of them could get in touch with her. And after spending hours trying to get in touch with both Chip and Claudia, their families finally alerted police shortly before nine o'clock that evening. Police showed up for a welfare check at the couple's duplex in Davis. They knocked on the front door, but got no response. So they forced their way inside. And when they gained entry into the condo, police were horrified by what they found. Chip and Claudia were dead in their bedroom and bathed in blood and gore. They had been stabbed more than 60 times apiece, 128 stab wounds between the two of them. And after their deaths, they were extensively mutilated, eviscerated and dissected by whoever had killed them. A killer who had apparently gained entry through a back window that had been left open by cutting the window screen and slipping inside. It was a harrowing crime scene. At first, burglary was considered as a possible motive. Like maybe this was just a burglary gone awry. Very, very awry. 
but nothing in the house was found to be missing and nothing was ransacked. So that was ruled out. Neighbors watched with their jaws agape as dozens of law enforcement officers moved in and out of the couple's condo. Their next door neighbor, 69-year-old Greg Gibbs, shared a wall with them inside the duplex and told police that he heard nothing out of the ordinary during the night and nothing else surfaces during the neighborhood canvas. Investigators asked neighbors and nearby residents to review their security camera footage from the night of the murders and report anything suspicious that popped up. And then the following morning, while officers were processing the murdered couple's condo for evidence, one of their neighbors happened to spot a suspicious looking man loitering in a parking lot nearby. The neighborhood alerted police and cops then approached the man and tried to question him. But suddenly he started his car and drove away, fleeing the scene. Davis police immediately began pursuing the car, which led them on a high-speed chase from Davis into neighboring Solano County. Davis police called in California Highway Patrol and Vacaville police cruisers for backup as the vehicle sped west on Interstate 80 into the city Fairfield. And as the man tried to turn off a ramp, he was cornered and quickly taken into custody. The man's name was Eamon Alahi, and he had a criminal record that included an 18-month stint in prison for perjury. He was held at the Yolo County Jail on 90,000 bail for evading the police. But after questioning him, investigators quickly ruled him out as a suspect in the murders of Chip and Claudia. So they were back to square one. And the city of Davis, which hadn't had a homicide in two years, was shocked and on edge with panic. The double slaying of Chip and Claudia was perplexing to everyone in the community, especially their families and investigators. Neither Chip nor Claudia had any known enemies one of Chip's close friends was retired Yolo County public defender, Barry Melton. Yes, the same Barry Melton, Barry the Fish Melton, who played guitar for Country Joe and the Fish in the late 1960s. He sang with Chip in the Crawdads Ensemble and thought of him as one of the nicest, kindest, sweetest people he knew. Who could possibly have wanted these lovely people dead in such a violent manner? Police would consider the possibility of a disgruntled former client of Chip Northup's law firm as Northup worked as a defense attorney, but an exhaustive review of his cases yielded zero suspects. Some investigators began to develop a theory that the cut screen was staged and that whoever entered the home actually used a key, which would make it more likely that someone inside the family was responsible. One of Chip's grandsons was known to have schizophrenia, and police questioned him and his brother and their father, Robert, extensively, until authorities were satisfied they had nothing to do with the murders. The slain couple's closest community outside their family was their church, the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis, where Chip was a founding member of the congregation, and Claudia was a pastoral associate and spiritual director. Both Chip and Claudia were very active in the church, where they made deep connections and were respected and well-loved. No one associated with the church that police talked to could think of anyone inside their community who would have wanted them dead. Police began to look more closely at the possibility that 
this was just a random attack. In recent months, there had been a series of home break-ins in the area. After the double murder, the president of the homeowners association where the couple lived decided it was time to form a neighborhood watch. Too many people were spooked. For Yolo County District Attorney Jeff Riesig, it was the most horrific depraved murder he'd seen in his entire career. And given the brutality of it, the messiness of it, authorities were almost certain they'd recover a mountain of forensic evidence inside the home. But at the scene, police were unable to find a single fingerprint, nor shoe prints, nor a single strand of foreign DNA, nothing. It was as though whoever killed these people was a phantom. Investigators didn't even know if they had one perpetrator or multiple because whoever it was, they left no trace of themselves. Detectives with the Davis police quickly found themselves stumped. They enlisted the help of outside agencies like the FBI, the West Sacramento Police Department, and the California Department of Justice. By the middle of the first week of the investigation, more than 50 investigators were working on the case. But weeks went by without a solid lead or even a clue. The case remained priority number one for the Davis police. The nature of the crime made catching the killer and getting him off the street an urgent mission. Police opened a tip line, but none of the scant tips that rolled in led anywhere. The murders took a heavy toll on the families of Claudia and Chip. Chip's daughter, Mary, used to see her father nearly every day when he took walks through the neighborhood that brought him near her workplace. Now she felt this crushing void. She was struggling with work, barely able to keep herself together each day, unable to start the grieving process as she was unable to access her father's condo to go through his things because it was sealed off as a crime scene. Talk of the murders was so infectious at the school of Mary's youngest son that she had to withdraw him and enroll him in a private school in another city. All the while, weeks crawled by without investigators developing so much as a single viable clue. Living not, not, living not far from Chip and Claudia at the time they were killed was a 15-year-old hero named Daniel Marsh. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes something will bug me and I literally will sit and stew about it forever, making a mountain of something totally mundane. And it will nag at me until I'm able to get it off my chest. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, but when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. The thing I love about therapy is it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma, it's helpful for literally anyone. Therapy has helped me so much during times when I felt like I was even doing okay. I have a better perspective on things in my life. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com dark today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash dark.
True crime fans, do you have a knack for solving mysteries? Well, it's time for you to meet your new favorite game, June's Journey. Dive headfirst into the opulent and perilous world of the 1920s as June Parker, determined to unravel the enigma of her sister's murder. With each hidden clue you discover, you're not just solving puzzles. You're peeling back layers of scandalous family secrets, navigating through danger, and even stumbling into unexpected romance. Romance. Imagine every scene is a gateway to a new thrilling storyline, taking you from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. You guys, I've been engrossed in a chapter that's challenging and utterly compelling. If you're like me, enjoying a puzzle to unwind, June's journey hits the spot. Plus, I mean, decorating my estate is incredibly satisfying. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. Daniel became a hero at the age of 10 when his father suffered a heart attack and fell unconscious while driving. Daniel courageously took the wheel of the family station wagon and steered it to safety and then used CPR to keep his father alive while awaiting paramedics. Daniel won the American Red Cross Award and made headlines for his bravery, his quick thinking, and his life-saving efforts. But that's where Daniel Marsh's heroism ended and his problems began. Not long after his father recovered from that heart attack, Daniel's parents divorced and it wasn't an amicable split. Daniel's mom had been having an affair with Daniel's former kindergarten teacher. That's when 10-year-old Daniel began having fantasies of murder fantasies that graduated onto plans, plans to kill that kindergarten teacher by either slitting her throat or strangling her to death. Daniel was in therapy at this time and he began opening up with his therapist and sharing some disturbing facts about himself. Namely, that he had dreams and fantasies of killing people, fantasies of torturing people, and an intense desire to act on those fantasies. By age 11, Daniel had been diagnosed with adjustment disorder and depression. Midway through junior high school, he began threatening to harm people. At age 12, Daniel was set up with a clinical social worker from Kaiser. He was prescribed Prozac, but as he bounced back and forth between his mom's place and his dad's place, they lived not far from one another, Daniel's dark fantasies only became more frequent. And when he became a teenager, he added other substances to his medicine chest, like weed and booze. It reached a point where his father became so fed up with his substance abuse that he threw him out, leaving him nowhere to go but with his mother, who paid so little attention to him that she seemingly wasn't even aware of his drug and alcohol abuse, and seemingly barely noticed when Daniel slid into anorexia. It wasn't until his weight had withered down to 93 pounds that he was finally admitted to an outpatient program for eating disorders and then eventually hospitalized for a month in Berkeley. Throughout this time, his medications kept getting switched up from Prozac to Celexa to Lexapro back to Prozac and then to Ablify, which is used to treat psychosis. When one of his doctors caught on that Daniel was having out-of-body experiences at least five times a week, but none of the treatment he was receiving did anything to lessen what appeared to be a headlong tumble into sadistic violence. His fantasies and thoughts of committing violence became more frequent 
as did his dreams of murder. At school, he was known as Dan who likes the dark. This was because he had introduced himself one day to a group of classmates by declaring, I'm Dan and I like the dark. In December of 2012, Daniel opened up to a counselor at school about his fantasies of killing people. And that counselor was so alarmed that she notified the police who came to Daniel's high school and had him involuntarily hospitalized. His meds were then switched up again to Zoloft and then with Seroquel and then Welbutrin. And in January, 2013, Daniel made yet another disturbing admission, this time to his school psychologist. When the psychologist asked him about murderous fantasies he was having involving classmates and whether or not he would act on them, Daniel told her in no uncertain terms, quote, I have full confidence that I could hurt these people. Once again, the cops were called to the school, but this time they decided Daniel wasn't a real threat to himself or others and took no action. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking this may have been a miscalculation of judgment here. Not long after, during another session with a school counselor, Daniel revealed that he wanted to torture people by peeling the skin from their hands, cutting off their eyelids, and this was only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the depth and depravity of his violent fantasies. He said, I've given up fighting them. At this point, no action was taken because the cops had already decided that Daniel posed no real danger, that it was just empty talk. Seeing that he could speak freely with apparently impunity, Daniel started talking more openly with friends and peers about his urge to commit violence. He said he had fantasies of becoming a serial killer and also of committing a school massacre. In his head, he liked to count the number of people he'd be able to kill before he was taken down. He would tell people that if he were ever caught and charged with murder, he'd plead insanity and just get off. He also wrote out a detailed plan for how he intended to kill his girlfriend Becca's ex-boyfriend. And in art class, his illustrations depicted violence, torture, mutilations, and murders in graphic detail. I mean, how many red flags does one kid need to wave in order to be removed from the general population and dealt with? The alarm bells in this case were deafening. So then Daniel turned 14. It was 2012 and his fantasies began to ooze out and spill over into reality. He became obsessed with gore porn, online videos of real deaths and bloody injuries. He began setting fires and harming animals, which you'll probably recognize as two very real predictors of violence, if you know anything about the McDonald triad. And I'm not talking about a Happy Meal combo. The McDonald triad consists of age-inappropriate bedwetting, fire setting, and cruelty to animals, which are considered to be the three childhood traits that, especially when all three coexist together, are the strongest predictors of the kind of violent behavior associated with serial rapists and killers. Daniel Marsh had kicked a dog, killed a raccoon, and strangled a cat simply because he didn't like the cat. And he had no inhibitions around asking his friend Alvaro if he may kill Alvaro's dog, a request that Alvaro politely declined. So if you're wondering why this episode took this random left turn into talking about this kid, Daniel Marsh, you're probably not really wondering. I'm sure you've figured it out by now. 
It's because if I were an investigator on this case and knew about Daniel's background, he would instantly become suspect number one. A kid with those issues living two blocks away from the victims and his father lived two doors down from them. He'd be an obvious suspect if only he were on the radar of the investigation, but he wasn't. And since there was absolutely no forensic evidence left behind at the crime scene, he may never have been. Except Daniel Marsh liked to talk. As we're already well aware, and no sooner than the very day Claudia and Chip's bodies were found, Daniel Marsh began bragging to his friend Alvaro that he'd murdered the old couple that lived two doors down from his dad. And then the day after that, he boasted to some more people and some more people the day after that. He was bragging about having committed the double murder practically every day after it happened to anyone who would listen. And not everyone was paying attention at first. Like his girlfriend, Becca, this is a pseudonym by the way, Daniel asked her if she'd heard about the two people who had been murdered. She told him she hadn't, so he proceeded to describe how everything went down. Becca brushed it off as BS, but he kept telling his friends, describing the crime in thorough detail, talking about how happy it made him. It was the best experience I've ever had, Daniel told a close friend with an exuberant smile. Suddenly, Daniel's mental state seemed much improved from before. It was like a weight had been lifted from him. His depression dissipated. He had an unfamiliar lightness, a spring in his step, a glint in his eye. It's the best feeling of my life, he bragged, exhibiting to his friends the very knife he claimed to have used to kill the two elderly people. The gloves, the ski mask, the boots, and the black pilot's jacket, everything he wore to the crime scene. Daniel's girlfriend and his friend Eric began conferring privately about Daniel, about how he was going around and what he was telling people. They began to suspect maybe he was serious. I have to say like, yeah, no duh especially when they read about the murders in the newspaper and saw them covered on the evening news. Now Becca and Eric grew scared. They decided to keep this information to themselves for the time being, lest Daniel decide to make them his next victims. But then Eric went to the front office and told administrators about the knife Daniel was carrying around in his backpack at school. Daniel's backpack was then searched and after finding the knife, school administrators promptly suspended him. More than a month went by without any movement in the investigation. By this point, still no one had gone to the police. Becca, feeling increasingly fearful of Daniel, broke off their relationship and Daniel did not take this news well. A week or so later, Daniel showed up at Becca's house in the middle of the night and crawled inside through the doggy door. This is like my biggest fear. Becca was scared out of her wits, although fortunately Daniel left without harming her. When she told Eric about what had happened the next day, he approached Daniel's dad and told him that Daniel had committed the murders. Daniel's dad dismissed this as bogus. Meanwhile, Daniel was already talking about committing his next murder. So at this point, Eric went to the police. Eric talked to the police for several hours. He recounted the details of the crime that Daniel had shared. Details investigators recognized that only the killer would know. The next day on June 17th, 2013, 
Daniel Marsh was arrested and taken in for questioning. He was first interviewed by a high school resource officer and then by Davis police detective Ariel Pineda, who was joined by special agent Chris Campion with the FBI. And contrary to his weeks of boasting, here, Daniel could only insist he had absolutely nothing to do with the murders. What do you know, Dan? I just know that somebody broke into this old couple's house and stabbed them, killed them. He broke down as he begged the investigators to believe him, but they didn't. And they patiently waited for Daniel to realize he wasn't going to talk himself out of this situation. It took about four hours before Daniel finally started sobbing and confessed. I just couldn't take it anymore, he told investigators. The urge had overcome him and he just had to do it. I'd had enough, he said. I lost control. I need help, okay? That night, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to do it. I lost control. He admitted waiting until late that night, around two in the morning, then leaving his mother's house armed with a buck knife, setting out to cruise the neighborhood on foot until he found a house with open doors or windows. Two doors down from his father's house, he spotted the duplex condo with its back windows open. It was a cool night. It was about 50 degrees outside. So Claudia and Chip surely left the windows open to let in the cool air. Daniel admitted that he cut the window screen, crawled inside the house, and stood silently in the living room until he could hear snoring. He followed the snoring sounds to the elderly couple's bedroom and then stood over them for several minutes, watching them sleep. His body was trembling with nervousness, excitement, and exhilaration as he realized he was finally going to do it. I was there, he said. It was finally happening. Suddenly, he recalled, Claudia woke up and saw Daniel in the room. She began to scream. He plunged his buck knife into her and repeatedly stabbed her in the stomach and continued stabbing her as she begged for him to stop. He acknowledged that he brutally stabbed each of them in a frenzied attack and kept stabbing them long after it was clear to him they both were dead. It just felt right, he said. He then proceeded to cut open their torsos, pointing to his own chest to indicate where on the couple's bodies he inflicted these post-mortem injuries. And he admitted he then put a cell phone inside of Claudia's body, inside of the wound, and a cup inside of Chip's body. I was trying to mess with the investigators, he explained. And he kept saying how, as he was reliving all of this, how uplifting of an experience it was for him to do these things to these poor people. I'm not gonna lie, it felt amazing. Most exhilarating, enjoyable feeling I've ever felt. It was pure happiness and adrenaline and dopamine, just all of it. And the high this created for him lasted for weeks. But as it began wearing off, he found himself thinking about doing it again. He was now planning to wander the streets of Davis with a baseball bat, looking for someone to beat to death. 
All right, when you're traveling, do you ever stress about what's happening back home? Like, did you forget to lock up or leave a window open? That's why I totally suggest getting Simply Safe home security today. It's for top notch security and peace of mind, no matter where your summer adventures take you. Anything you might worry about leaving your home for an extended period of time has been thought out by Simply Safe. It's whole home protection with sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. It's definitely so nice, you know, when you're home to be like, oh, no one's probably going to break in. But when you're away from home, it's also nice to have that peace of mind that there's not a fire, there's not a flood, no one is coming into your house. There's a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras we've installed, so we have a view of all the entry points. Plus, I just feel relieved knowing that it's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash Payton, P-A-Y-T-O-N. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Daniel admitted, I don't feel sympathy for other people, like at all. I don't feel empathy for them. He told the investigators that he'd been having fantasies of killing people since he was 10. And whenever he looked at another person, whenever he encountered someone, he would think about how he would kill them. Special Agent Campion then asked Daniel how he would kill them. Just a lot of ways, Daniel responded, and in a voice and a manner so dry, he could have just as well been listing his homework assignments. Daniel began to describe some of the ways he might kill Special Agent Campion. There's a lot of ways. Um, choking you to death with your tie. Okay. Uh, beating your face into the mirror until it broke and using the glass to cut your arteries. Uh, gouging your eyes out and smashing your face into the wall. Okay. Nothing personal. Concluding the interrogation, Daniel helpfully told the investigators that all the evidence they would need was inside his mother's garage. And indeed, when they searched the garage, they found the knife he used to kill and mutilate the elderly couple and the bloody pilot's jacket and clothing he wore during the crime. Instead of throwing them out and getting rid of the evidence, Daniel Marsh had kept them as trophies. After hearing everything Daniel told them, authorities formally charged him with two counts of first-degree murder. And although the charges included special circumstances for lying in wait, for exceptional depravity, for the use of a deadly weapon, and for torture, and although he was going to be tried as an adult, the fact that he was nonetheless a minor made him ineligible for the death penalty. He was held without bond. Daniel pleaded not guilty despite making that confession, which his attorneys tried and failed to have thrown out as inadmissible. He later changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity, and Daniel's defense team then hired a psychiatrist to examine him. As soon as the psychiatrist met with Daniel, Daniel threatened to kill him. And as a result of his examination, the psychiatrist deemed Daniel to be sane mentally ill and a psychopath who killed for pleasure, but sane. But that didn't deter the defense team from moving ahead with an insanity defense. His trial began on September 4th, 2014, nearly a year and a half after the murders. His defense team's argument for insanity was that the side effects of medications he was prescribed, combined with his specific strain of mental illness, rendered him temporarily insane and unable to contain his violent impulses, and instead painted a portrait of Marsh that showed him to be calculating, manipulative, and cunning. 
planning the murders in advance and boasting about them afterward. And look, Daniel Marsh is certainly mentally ill. He's not well. There's something unquestionably wrong with his brain or the brain of anyone who commits a senseless murder simply for the exhilaration and thrill of it. The question is, what level of mental illness removes a person from accountability? And what juries look at is whether or not the person was able to distinguish right from wrong at the time they committed the crime. And in Daniel's case, he clearly did. He knew what he had done was wrong and he was careful not to leave forensic evidence. That he bragged about it endlessly afterward just reinforces how distorted his thinking is. When the coroner described the couple's post-mortem injuries while testifying, some of the jurors gasped in horror. It took the jury about two hours to deliberate and decide that Daniel was sane enough to be held accountable. And he was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to 52 years to life, which is the max sentence he could have received because being a minor also made him ineligible for life without parole. In her victim impact statement, Claudia's eldest daughter, Victoria, remembered her mother as someone who, quote, lived her life loving people, always willing to lend a hand, a shoulder, or an ear. If she were here, she would help us survive this, she told the court. But she is not here because Daniel Marsh killed my mother for his own perverse gratification. She revealed to the court that her mother's wounds were so extensive, there was such overkill that an expert had to restore her body just so we could hold her hand and kiss her goodbye. Mary Northup couldn't wrap her head around why a 15-year-old boy would have wanted to harm an 87-year-old man, a father and grandfather and an attorney who, ironically, would have represented and defended Daniel without hesitation. In his sentencing statement, Judge David Reed said, quote, Daniel's actions cannot be described as impetus or recklessly impulsive. He thought about killing someone for a long time before doing it. He was proud of what he did. Daniel mutilated Oliver Northup and Claudia Maupin because of morbid curiosity. Marsh made no statement. After sentencing, he was sent to a juvenile detention facility where he spent the next two years before being transferred to a state prison when he turned 18. What's really terrifying in Daniel's case is that his sentence does allow for the possibility of parole. In 2018, outgoing California Governor Jerry Brown signed into law Senate Bill 1391, which prevents defendants under the age of 16 from being tried as adults. That law was upheld as constitutional by the California Supreme Court in February 2021. And this technically means that Daniel Marsh's conviction could be overturned and Marsh could be released anytime. Technically. Luckily for all of us, the same Supreme Court has twice rejected his appeals and refused to review the appellate court ruling. One can only hope they continue indefinitely to recognize what a danger, inherent killer Daniel Marsh is and how much of a hazard he would be out in society. Okay, you guys, that is it for this week's binged episode. Remember to tune in and remember to give us a review and give this video a thumbs up and we will see you next week with another episode. Goodbye. <laughs>